You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. Luke chapter 16, if you don't mind. Luke chapter 16, we're gonna, that's going to be our primary text today, but then I want you to kind of hold your place at Luke 16 and turn back over to Revelation 20. Revelation 20, I want to say welcome to each of you today. I'm glad that you're here, and I'm glad uh, for all those that are watching online this morning. We're also glad that you are here with us this morning. I just want to remind you that... Um, those online that you can engage, you can uh, post prayer requests, you can ask questions. We have someone in the back that is sitting at a computer right now watching the service, and they are there for the sole purpose of engaging with you. So if you have a question about something, if you have a prayer request, uh, if you want to respond to the gospel, uh, there is someone live right now sitting at a computer waiting for you to kind of type into that sidebar on the uh, side of your screen, and they will engage with you right then and there. So uh, just the Amazing technology that we have to be able to do that. I'm thankful for it. So Revelation 20, uh, I want to start there because that's kind of where we were last week because there's something that kind of arises in the text that we, we need to deal with that feeds right in with what we're going to discuss today. There is as much confusion about hell, um, separation from God for, for all eternity. There's as much confusion about that as there is heaven. And just like what we saw with heaven, that the way the Bible uses the word heaven, depending on its context, can, can mean several different things. And so it is with what we understand to be hell. Uh, when you look in your Bible, you'll see that in different translations, um, sometimes the, the ones that kind of translated the original languages into your English, sometimes they use a word hell, sometimes they use the word Hades. Sometimes they use a word Gehenna in some English translations. I want you to understand that in the English translation that you have, it is a translation of Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. And when they are translating into English, oftentimes they get into situations where they have to make a choice about what English word they're going to use to kind of convey the message that needs to be conveyed. And that's why sometimes we have a little bit of variation between say an ESV, which I'm using this morning, or an NIV, or a King James Version, or a NASB. That's why we have a little bit of variation there. Sometimes when we look at those variations, it, it causes some confusion. So just like last week, I kind of had to lay out a, a kind of a timeline of, of what God was going to do as He wraps things up. Today, I kind of need to give us a big picture of, of these different terms for us to be able to understand kind of what's happening in Luke 16. So in the Gospels, in the New Testament, in Acts, James, Peter, Revelation, we see the word hell or Hades being used interchangeably. Oftentimes as Christians, when we say hell, we're referring about everything that I'm going to talk to you about. So we use the, the terminology as hell. We, we rarely ever in conversation use the word Hades or Gehenna. But all of it together gives us a picture of what the afterlife is going to be for those who reject the gospel and reject Jesus Christ and God's grace. So in the Gospels, we have the word hell translated. Uh, the word behind it is Gehenna. 
Now, Jesus, when he would be teaching, he would, he would often be maybe on the Sermon on the Mount or he would be inside the city of Jerusalem. He would use this word Gehenna. And I think one of the reasons that he used it is because he could point beyond the walls of the city and refer to an actual place right outside the walls, the Valley of Hinnom. And in that area, they, they knew this area well because it was an area that no Jewish person would ever even come close to going to. If you went to it, you were basically declared well, dirty, you were declared uh, unfit, you were declared uh, uh, righteously unclean, and you could not participate in some of the temple practices. And the reason is, is because in that area, it was basically a big burning trash heap. But historically in the Old Testament, in that particular area, there were certain unrighteous kings that were offering their children as sacrifices to false gods in that very area. That area was also known that if you had a, a body that was lying in the streets that was unknown, had no family, maybe someone who was poor. They would take that body and go throw it into the ash dump of Hinnom, Gehenna. So when Jesus is talking about and illustrating the afterlife for those who reject Christ and reject the gospel, he would refer to this place called Gehenna. And he would do that some 11 times in the gospels. Acts mentioned it twice. The book of James mentions it once. Then we get into this other terminology called Hades, which we're going to see not only in Revelation 20, but also in Luke 16. And in some translations, it, it translates Hades as hell, or it may use the word Hades in, in context. So look at Revelation chapter 20. We read this last week. And by the way, I want to say thank you to all those who sent me questions. I think I spent over a half a day just, just answering emails from last week's sermon. I love doing that. I want to encourage you to continue to do that. Jeff at highpark.church, you can email me there. You can go through our Facebook links, through our information tab on, the, on our website, however you want to do it. Or you can see me back here at the back after the service. Either one will be fine. Revelation chapter 20, look at verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades, or hell, depending on your translation, gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So we have this statement that, that John is revealing to us that sometime in the future, there's going to be a time where Hades, this place, is going to give up the dead that are in it, those that were in Hades were the ones who had rejected Christ, the ones whose names were not written in the Lamb's book of life, and they're going to be brought up out of this place, and they're going to be standing before God, and God is going to judge them. We know this to be the great white throne judgment. And, and God is going to place, place judgment upon them, and He's going to take them after He places the judgment upon them that their names were not found in this book, that means that they had never put their faith in Jesus, that they had died rejecting the gospel. He's going to take them and he's going to throw them into the lake of fire. Now, what I want you to see here is there's two different locations being talked about. There is a current place called Hades. We often call it hell. That when a person dies apart from Christ, they go into this place and it's a place of suffering and torment. And then those people at some point in the future, it hasn't happened yet, at some point in the future are going to be brought out of that place. They're going to stand before God. They are going to be judged. Their names are not found in the book. And they are going to be cast into the lake of fire, the same place that the Antichrist, the false prophet, and by this point, Satan has been cast. Now, oftentimes when we think about hell, we think about the lake of fire. 
But the reality is, is this place of Hades is what we're going to focus on today. And we're going to talk about it. And we're going to look at some of the different issues that brings up, well, some difficulties in trying to figure this out. So let me add some difficulty to this. So in the Old Testament, and I got this question this week, and it's a very good question. What about, what about all those Old Testament patriarchs like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, and Moses, and, and all these people we read about in the Old Testament who were faithful to God? who put their faith in Him. What about them? Where are they at? Well, the Old Testament kind of makes this a little more complicated because in the Old Testament, it uses a term, Sheol. Oftentimes, it may refer to when, when David dies, it says that he goes and, and he's with his fathers. Well, Sheol in the Old Testament has this concept of, of a place where the dead go after they pass away. The problem is, is when we look at the Old Testament, we find that both patriarchs, People who put their faith in God, the ones who were faithful to God, end up in Sheol just as much as those who were unfaithful to God end up in Sheol. So to give you an example, you don't have to turn there, but in Genesis 37, verse 35, uh, Jacob dies. And it says there in a text that he goes to Sheol, to this abode of the dead. And certainly Jacob was faithful. Jacob had put his faith in God. Jacob certainly was a man who, who followed after God. And, and certainly that faith had been accounted to him as righteousness. But then we read over in Numbers chapter 16 that there was a, a guy by the name of Korah, who, a very evil guy, and there were people that kind of followed Korah. And he had an uprising against the Israelites. And if you remember, God judged Korah and all those who followed him, and they actually fell off into Hades alive which is kind of an incredible thought. But, but it says that they went to Sheol as well. So now we have Jacob who had his faith in God who goes to Sheol, the abode of the dead. But we also have Korah and all those who rebelled against God also gained, going to Sheol. So we have kind of a conundrum here, don't we? How is it that both righteous and unrighteous end up in a place? And how can it be that, that Jacob and those who were faithful to God, could it be that, that they're being punished? Could it be that that they are suffering in what we understand to be hell. And then when we get to Revelation 20, we have this Hades delivering up those who are in Sheol. Let me, let me get this point across. There is a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. And in the Greek translation of that Old Testament, everywhere that Sheol is used, they use the word Hades. So there is an equivalency between Sheol and Hades. They're, they're, they're equal in term. In other words, it's a place of the dead. So if... Hades, here in Revelation, empties out, and, and all those whose names were not in the Lamb's Book of Life, those who were unrighteous, who rejected God and rejected Christ, they're going to be cast in the lake of fire. Well, what about Jacob, Joseph, Abraham, David, Moses, Daniel? Where, where are they at? They weren't there. They weren't cast into the lake of fire, so where are they? Turn to Ephesians 4. So we have kind of a conundrum here. We have kind of a paradox. How do, we, how, do we, how do we deal with this? Because Jacob, dying in righteousness because of his faith, certainly wasn't placed in torment, and he certainly wasn't cast into the lake of fire. So where is Jacob? Where is Abraham? Where is Isaac? Well, in Ephesians 4, and I'll give you another text. We're not going to go to it. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. We have this, this really quick couple of verses that kind of give us just a little hint and it's an amazing thought. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. Now, the context of Ephesians 4 is not heaven and hell. It's not about the place of the dead. 
It's actually talking about the church being unified. It's talking about that the church is to be one body under one Holy Spirit, uh, under one baptism, and that that God is going to give spiritual gifts to the church to complete the work that God has given the church to do. But it's in that context that Paul is going to give us a little background on when those spiritual gifts were initially given. Look at verse 8 in chapter 4. He says, therefore it says, now Paul's going to quote Psalm 68, 18. It says here, when he ascended on high, that's Jesus, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. Now notice that. So it says that when Jesus ascends, that there were captives that were being, that were joining in with him. And it's at that same time that he gave these spiritual gifts to men, to the early church, to accomplish what he called them to accomplish. And in verse 9, he's got this statement in parentheses, kind of, kind of a little explanation here. He says, in saying that he ascended, what does it mean that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? And he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Go to Luke 16. Now, the only way that we can kind of make sense of what we're going to look at in this parable today is with this understanding. And, and trust me, when I, trust me I, know I'm, I know I'm going to get some questions about this week. It's okay. I understand there are different viewpoints on this. I understand that the verses that I'm using to kind of support this particular theory Quite frankly, there's not a lot of them. But the only way to understand where those patriarchs were, were and understand how that Hades was delivered up and all the people out of Hades were put before God in the great white throne judgment, the only conclusion that I've been able to draw and several other theologians down through time is this, that Hades has two compartments in it. There is one side of Hades that is a place of torment, a place where where people who've rejected God and rejected Christ are in torment. We're going to see one of them this morning in this parable. But also in that same place called Hades was another compartment, another location that was paradise, that was a place of comfort, a place of peace, a place of love, a place of acceptance. So the idea is that when Jesus died on that cross, and this is part of the Westminster Catechism and several other documents that talk about our, our theology and our doctrine, there is the understanding that Jesus descended into Hades from the time, from between the time he died on the cross before he resurrected and ascended, that Jesus ascend, descended into this place called Hades. And what he did is he took all those people, all those patriarchs, all those who had died in faith, he gathers them up and he empties out that side of Hades and he takes those folks into heaven. Now remember, when Jesus died on the cross, he wasn't just dying for the future sins of humanity. He, he was dying for the sins that had occurred at the time of his death. He also died for the sins of those in the past. For example, those who, Moses and others, who had offered sacrifices through the Levitical law. The book of Hebrews tells us that no blood of a, a lamb, an ox, a bull, a dove can remove the sins that you've committed. All it would do is require that this sacrifice be made as, as an atoning, a covering for your sins. And what that would allow is the people of Israel to live in a, a relationship with God, but it never removed their sins. All it did was it took their sins and it put it over here in a big old holding account until the righteous Lamb of God, the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world, would come and give His life as a sin payment for all of that sin. So those folks who had died in Christ, 
They were kind of held in this place called Hades. They were not suffering. They were not in torment. They were in Abraham's bosom, a place of comfort. But when Jesus dies on that cross and pays for all of their sins, and their sins are wiped out, Jesus descends into that place and He leads them out. you remember what Jesus said to the thief on the cross? Jesus is dying on the cross. The thief next to Him begins to express faith in Jesus. And Jesus said to him, you remember what He said? Today you will be with me where? In paradise. Not heaven, not the throne room of God, but but paradise. So the idea is, is that thief went with Jesus and descended down into this place called Hades, and then he immediately was taken into heaven with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Daniel, and all those in the Old Testament who are righteous. So we have Hades, which has a place of torment, but it also had another place that Jesus has now emptied out. Now we're ready to talk about this particular parable. Look at Luke 16. What I want to get across to you today is just as much as heaven is a reality for those who've put their faith in Jesus, everlasting torment is the destination for those who reject Him. Now this is a parable, but this parable is unlike any other parable that Jesus ever spoke. There's a lot of things about this parable that, that make it stand out from every other parable that He taught. Matter of fact, there are several uh, theologians and, and folks who have a lot more learning than I've got who've written several books, and they say that this is not a parable at all. You may have heard that some believe that this was an actual event that Jesus could see in His mind's eye. So this is not a parable at all. This is actually a story of reality, that there was a literal rich man and there was a literal man named Lazarus. Jesus knows where they ended up. He knows what happened, and He's recounting it right here. I'm not so sure about that. Because there are characteristics of this that, does, that, that seem to indicate that this is, in fact, a parable. Nonetheless, it's a very unique parable. What makes it unique is that Jesus names one of the people in the parable. He doesn't do that in any of the other parables. Here he says, a man named Lazarus. Another thing about this parable that's unique is that the other parables often talk about, you know, everyday world situations that the disciples and the Pharisees knew about. Uh, gardening, sowing seeds, planting, harvesting. They knew about those things. They, they, they could understand a man who, who took his uh, inheritance from his dad and went off and blew it. They could understand that. But this parable talks about something that they had no earthly connection to. In other words, what Jesus is going to explain here in this parable, there, there's nothing physically that gives them any insight into this place called Hades. Now the context of this parable, if you go back and you look at the paragraphs before, here's what you're going to find. Jesus is talking about money. And he, he's talking about how that, that money, you, you can't worship it, you can't, you can't put your faith in it, it's not going to save you, it's not going to give you eternal life. That the Pharisees, if you look up in verse 14, it says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money, not only did the Pharisees love money, but they believed that money, wealth, was a sign of you being right with God. So in other words, if you had a big house and you had lots of money and you had lots of food, then certainly if anybody was right with God, it was you because you had all of these physical blessings that God had poured out on you. And not only that, if, if you were poor, if you were poor, then you had some sin in your life that God had not forgiven you of, and therefore you were pretty well set 
There, there was no way that you could be reconciled to God, and the, wealth, the wealthy man could no way be separated from God. So they had this idea in the mind of the Pharisees, and they were teaching it that, that, it, that the wealthy were absolutely right with God. Well, guess who's going to blow that up? <laughs> Jesus is going to blow that up. And that's the context of what we have here when we get to verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. So the opening character of this parable is a rich man. And it says that he was clothed in purple. Now we know uh, in reading in other places in the New Testament that, that purple, having purple cloth, was, was an object of wealth. If you remember over in the book of Acts, there's a young lady by the name of Lydia in Philippon. And she's, she's wealthy, and, and she's one of the first converts that Paul sees there as he plants that church in Philippi. But the reason purple cloth meant that you had wealth is because to be able to make purple cloth, it was a long process. There was this shellfish that they had to fish for, and they had to extract some of the, the fluid out of that shellfish, and it was a long process to get to purple. So just like anything in our day, anything that's hard to process or something that is very limited automatically drives the price up. So if you have purple and fine linen, you are the wealthiest of the wealthy. Notice that next phrase, he feasted sumptuously. Another way to put that is, is he was joyously living in splendor every single day of his life. This man wanted for nothing. All he had to do was snap his fingers. He had servants. He had all the food he could eat. He had a nice home. He had everything that you could possibly want. And not only that, from the perspective of the Pharisees, this man is right with his God. Look at the next character. And at his gate, the gate of the rich man, another indication that he had quite a bit of wealth, he had a gate around his house. At this gate was, a, was laid a poor man. Notice that, was laid. It sounds to me like he's not able to get there. It sounds to me like he needed assistance to get there. And why is he there? Because he needs something to eat. This poor man was named Lazarus. And he was covered with sores. That idea of sores weeping lesions, not necessarily leprosy, but if you were to look at him, you wouldn't be able to tell where the sores end and his skin begins. And they're weeping, oozing. And this man is brought to this rich man's gate because who else better in society to take care of this man's needs than the man who has everything? So this man was laid at his gate, he's covered in sores, and he deserved to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. The poor man who's there is having people walk by him, no doubt, every day. In my mind's eye, I can see the rich man just passing by, his servants passing by. And this poor man's not wanting to be brought in and set at the banquet table. He's not wanting to come in and be, be dressed in purple clothes. He's not wanting to sit down with the owner, with the rich guy, and have a meal at his table. He's simply wanting some scraps that are falling from his table. The scraps that, that this rich man cares nothing about. The scraps, no doubt, that are going to be thrown out for the dogs to eat. This man is in such poor shape. He simply wants some crumbs. Now it's at this point, let me read the next part, look at this. It says, moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. What an imagery we have here. I see a man with tattered clothes. I see a man who may even be lame. That's why he was placed there. 
I see a man whose existence is upon the scraps that other people throw away. I see a man with sores that are oozing to such a degree that the only comfort that he could find was from the lowest, most hated animal of this culture, and it was a dog. There was only a few things hated worse than dogs. Samaritans were one. But dogs were the low. They were not household pets in Jesus' day. They were hated. They were, they were considered unclean. You didn't, you didn't have dogs in your house as pets. And, and here's this guy with his sores and with his poverty laying at the gate looking for scraps to eat. And those dogs that the Jewish people hated to a, to a tenth degree are all around him licking the sores. That's the only comfort that he had. Now it's at this point any Pharisee who would walk by would make two judgments immediately. On the one hand, the guy who's in the mansion, oh, he's definitely in right with God. Definitely. I mean, just look at his wealth. Look, look at his money. Look at his gates. Look at his purple clothes. Look at his food. Look how many servants he's got. That guy is right with God. And then they would make another judgment. They would look at the guy at the gate with the dogs surrounding him. They would look at that guy and say, that guy's not even fit to live. That guy is lower than a human being. That guy, somebody, either he has sinned or somebody in his family has sinned. But certainly if there's anybody that's far away from God's grace, far away from God's forgiveness, it's that guy. So in one single moment, everyone, especially the Pharisees who look, says that guy is with God, that guy is not. That's exactly why Jesus is teaching this particular story. Because notice what happens. Verse 22. The poor man died. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Now, this will be the first big gasp that you would have heard if you'd been there that day. If there had been any Pharisees, even the disciples, when they hear this, the oxygen would have left the room. Everybody would have been sucking in so hard. <gasps> because here's what Jesus says. Lazarus is picked up by the angels of God. And he is carried to Abraham's bosom. You see, in their mind, there is no possible way that this guy could have ever been picked up by angels, much less be in Abraham's bosom, be in a place of comfort, be in a place of peace, be in a place that God had arranged for him to go to. There is no way. And that idea of Abraham's bosom, make sure we get this picture, that it would be the picture of, of Abraham having his arm around Lazarus, Lazarus laying his head on the chest of Father Abraham. He says here that the rich man died. He was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. But the rich man also died, and look at this, he was buried. You see the finality there? No mention of angels, no mention of Abraham's bosom. He, he dies. And he's buried. Not that he went to be with his fathers. Not that, that everything was okay. Everything is not okay. And those hearing the story would have certainly picked up on the contrast here. Not only do we have a contrast between the wealthy man and the poor man, now we have a contrast that life has now ended and now dead has completely flipped the entire situation. The rich man also died and was buried. And notice where he finds himself. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham afar off. And what else does he see? Lazarus at his side. As I have told you before, death is the great 
equalizer, is it not? All people are going to face death, both the wealthy and the poor. But what you also need to understand is, is the perceptions we've got about the wealthy. We may find out that after their death, after life is over, that if they didn't have their faith in Jesus, there's not a single thing their money's going to do for them. There's not a single thing their power is going to do. There's not a single thing their influence in politics is going to do. That at that moment, all that matters is whether they have accepted Jesus Christ as their king or not. That's it. Look at verse 24. So this rich man, he looks off in a distance and he sees Abraham and he sees Lazarus with the patriarch Abraham. But he's in a place of torment. So we have, we have two places here. We have, we have a place of torment and we have a place of comfort. But somehow they're in the same place. Notice. He calls out and he says, verse 24, he called out, Father Abraham. Now, something I want to point your attention to. He says, Father Abraham. We find out something else about this rich man. Not only was he wealthy, not only did he have everything you could possibly need, he's also portrayed in this parable as a Jewish man. That's why he says, Father Abraham. So not only does he have the heritage of Judaism, but he also had wealth, and, and certainly in his culture, if anybody was going to Abraham's bosom, it's this guy. He has the heritage of Jews, and he also has wealth. But notice what he says in verse 24. He says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Notice that word anguish is only used three times in the New Testament. Two times is in this parable. And it is the idea of incredible pain. It is the idea that, that the pain is so overwhelming. It is so bad. It is so incredibly horrible that you're at a loss of words to even be able to describe it. And anguish is, is probably as close as we can get in English words to describe this. But Abraham said, child, remember, notice that. This rich man is in such pain that all he can ask for is a drop of water on his tongue. And what little bit of comfort that would bring in the moment that it, that it would happen would be so fast and so fleeting that it really wouldn't matter. But in this moment, all he can think of is the anguish that he's in and the fact that if he could get, just get one drop of water, that that for a moment, just a moment, he could have a little bit, a little bit of comfort. But notice what Abraham says. In verse 25, I want you to see this. But Abraham said, child, remember. I think one of the most disturbing things that I'm seeing here is not just necessarily the torment in these flames, flames that are not consuming him. He, he, he's burning, he's in anguish, but he's, he's not being consumed. In other words, He's burning, but yet it's not burning him up. The flames are not being extinguished. You would imagine that he would just burn up at some, some point in time here, that, that, that he would know that some point these flames are just going to completely consume him and he's going to cease to exist. Here's the problem, folks. At nowhere in the Old Testament or the New Testament does it say that the eternal state, whether it be in heaven or whether it be in torment, is ever going to come to an end. Just as much as heaven is eternal, this place is eternal. So there is no burning up and ceasing to exist. There is no being annihilated. It's it's going to last for on and on and on. And right here, Abraham says something 
that blows my mind. He says to this rich man, remember, is it possible that, that this man has memories of his former life? That's what Abraham says. That's what Jesus is saying in this parable. Remember, before you died, you had everything. You had all the comfort in the world. You, you, had, you had anything at your beckons call. But now, you are in torment. Remember Lazarus? He was sitting at your gate. All he wanted was scraps. There was no comfort for Lazarus. The only comfort that he got was from the dogs who lift, licked his sores. He had no comfort, yet now he's being comforted. The roles have been completely reversed, and you are in anguish. Verse 26, and besides this, between us is a great chasm that has been fixed. But between where this torment side of Hades was and this comfort side of Hades, there's some massive gulf, some huge valley, some huge separation. And there is no way from anybody from the comfort side to go over to the torment side and bring anyone out. In other words, it's fixed. In order that those who would pass from here to you may not, and none may cross from there to us. It's fixed. Now, when Jesus dies on that cross and He descends into this place and He empties this place out, Hades now is empty of the comfort side of, of that place. But that place of torment is being enlarged. More and more and more people are falling into it. Think of it this way. If you commit some terrible crime, if you, if you go out today and you, you rob a bank or you uh, break in somewhere and you, you take something or you, or you take someone's life, you're going to be arrested, you're going to be placed in jail, and you're going to be held in jail until your trial comes up. And then when your trial comes up, the evidence is going to be placed before you and before a jury of your peers, they're going to find you guilty and then they put you into prison. There's not a lot of difference between jail and prison. You've lost all your freedoms. Here, Hades is kind of like this holding place that you're going to be held until you come out to that great wine throne judgment. And at that time, you're going to be pronounced guilty of all your sins because your name was not found written in the Lamb's book of life. And at that point, you're going to be thrown off in the lake of fire, which burns. But notice, this rich man is in anguish, in torment. Notice what happens next, verse 27. The rich man has another request. He says, and he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, send Lazarus. For I have five brothers, so that, they may be, that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Isn't it interesting that the first thing that this rich man thinks about after he's denied water, the very next thing he thinks about is his family? That he is aware of his family. But not only that, all of a sudden, the rich man is concerned about evangelism. He doesn't want anybody else to come to this awful place. So he wants somebody to go herald the word to his brothers to make sure his brothers don't come to where he is. But notice what Abraham says. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. In other words, God's Word is sufficient. They, they don't need someone else going. Everything that's been said that needs to be said, everything was there, even with the Old Testament law and the prophets. What was there is more than enough for you to respond 
to God and, and to His mercy. Rich man says this, and he said, Well, no, Father Abraham, but if, if someone goes to them from the dead, if, if Lazarus resurrects from the dead and goes and knocks on my brother's doors, then certainly when they see someone who was dead and has come back to life and is now warning them about hell, that, that certainly they will respond, they will repent, they will believe, and they can escape this awful place. Verse 31, But he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. How do we know that to be true? How do we know that that last line is exactly spot on? Because those watching online today and maybe you sitting in this room, you've heard about the resurrection of Jesus Christ over and over again. You've heard about the facts about it. You've heard that that it requires us to believe by faith in Him, and yet you reject over and over again. We've got someone who raised from the dead. We've got someone who stepped into an upper room and revealed Himself to His disciples. We've got someone who over 500 people saw Him alive, heard Him teach, walked with Him, talked with Him, could see the wounds in His hands, and yet... You still reject Him. So even if you have someone resurrect from the dead, they still choose unbelief. How is that? Have you ever wondered about that? How is it that with the incredible mountain of evidence that we've got, not only biblical evidence, but we've got people writing from Roman history that says something happened on that third day. They've never found the body. Every argument that has been leveled against the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ has been destroyed over and over again. What else do you need? I would offer to you, you don't need anything else. I would offer to you that the reason you're not putting your faith in Jesus, the reason you're rejecting the resurrection, is because you already have a God that your allegiance, that your allegiance is with. You already have something. It may be money. It may be fame. It may be comfort. It may be you just being in control. But make no mistake about it, you are rejecting the bodily resurrection because you like life the way you've got it. I would say that would be the same for the rich man, wouldn't you? He had all he needed. He didn't need anything else. And he had the teachers of the day telling him that he's okay when he wasn't okay. He says, no, they will neither be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. There's a few things I want to give you out of this text and what we've looked at this morning. I know it's came fast. I know, I know it's been coming more like a, a, a fire hydrant than a water fountain this morning, but stick with me. There's a few things I want to give you that, that are really concerning out of this parable. Now remember, the thrust of this parable and what Jesus was trying to get across is that wealth is not going to get you into the kingdom of God. He's, he's showing them that, that their understanding of what salvation is couldn't be further from the truth that they were proclaiming. The first thing I want you to see from this parable is there is consciousness, there is feelings, and there is self-awareness in this place called Hades. And this should make all of us pause. This place, this torment side of Hades, if, if there are people there right now, and there are, just, just, as sure, just as sure as your loved one that put their faith in Jesus, that when you stood around their graveside and, and the one who was speaking that day said that to be absent from the bodies, to be present from the Lord, for, that for those who put their faith in Jesus, 
that they are not lost, that they are in the, that they are in the arms of Christ, and they are in a place of comfort. Just as much as that is true, those who rejected Christ, those, those who did not put their faith in Him, are in this place of torment that Jesus describes this rich man. It's a place of flame. It's a place of pain and anguish. It's a place of torment. But what is really, really concerning and what should really get our attention is that the rich man, as Jesus describes him here, is alert. He knows his circumstances. He's aware of himself. He understands that that he had a life previously. He is burning but never consumed. It's at this point you may be thinking, well, how in the world? If, if this is eternal, and of course they'll be brought out, the great white throne judgment, and cast into a lake of fire. But you may think, well, how, how could a holy God, a God who is loving, a God who is all about grace and mercy, how could God do this? Certainly there must be this place in the middle that they'll come out one day and they'll have an opportunity to respond. Or maybe I've heard about this place called purgatory. It's this kind of in-between place where they're just kind of hovering as a spirit and, and that, that if we'll pray and we'll give money to the Catholic Church that they'll be sprung out of that place. Or, or maybe somewhere along the line, Jesus will go down there and, and preach, preach the gospel to them and deliver them out. Folks, none of what I just told you comes out of Scripture. It comes out of tradition and opinion, but it doesn't come from Scripture. And the reality is, now what's happening here? never ends. Jesus said this in Mark 9. He said, if your hand is causing you to offend, if your hand is causing you to sin, it would be better for you to cut off your own hand and go through the rest of your life with just one hand than end up in this place of torment. Now, he's not saying to literally cut off your hand. He's not saying that if this hand is getting into things, to cut it off. No, what he's saying is, is take radical steps. Take radical steps to make sure, be certain of your destiny once you breathe your last breath. He said if your eye offends you, if you're having trouble looking at things you ought not to be looking at, you, you'd be better off to pluck that eye out, to walk through the rest of your life with one eye, then to go off into this place. Again, he's not saying literally take your eye out. But what he is saying is that this is a reality. That the gift of salvation has already been given. And that you must receive that gift by faith and turning from your old life. But there is consciousness. There's feelings. There's awareness. In that same chapter of Mark 9, Jesus talks about the fire will never be quenched, and the worm never dies. Now, this, this is an incredible text there in Mark. And Jesus says, their worm never dies. Now, what got my attention with that is he says, their worm. That idea of worm or the Greek behind that is like a maggot, something that feeds on dead flesh. I don't know that there's real, literal worms there or not. Here's what I think he may be referring to, is that that consciousness of being aware of where you are. Maybe even possibly that you can remember all the times that you heard the gospel. You can remember what the gospel is. You can remember maybe a day in February where you heard a guy talk about this place. That in that place, they're still remembering all of that. And it's that worm of consciousness that is gnawing and gnawing 
and gnawing, the realization that it could have been different, but it will never be able to be different for all eternity. Second thing I want you to realize is that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel is good news, but the gospel is more than just fire insurance. What do I mean by that? I've talked to a myriad of people down through the years who who responded at an invitation or vacation Bible school or an evangelistic event because they were so scared of going to this place that they were willing to say anything, do anything. It didn't matter. It didn't matter. Matter of fact, they don't even really understand what it means to follow Jesus by faith, but they were so scared to death of this place that they were going to do anything anybody asked them to do. So, so what they did is they, they got some fire insurance, or maybe they got some fire insurance, and just like with your house, when you buy fire insurance, you, you put that policy back in your filing cabinet. You don't think about it anymore, do you? You go on with your life. You live any way you want to live. And what I have found is down through the years that some people heard only part of the gospel. They only heard the bad part. They only heard about hell. They never heard about the good news of Jesus Christ, that Jesus died in their place, that He gave His blood that they may be set free, that to put your faith in Jesus means to have a brand new life and to follow Him and take up a cross day after day after day. They only heard one little part. They didn't hear any of the other part, the good news, and they were so scared they just responded to whatever they could respond to. What's interesting is, is what, what most often prompts that conversation to happen is they've never had any security in Christ. They've been going their whole life, am I saved? Am I not? The fear never really left. As a matter of fact, they're just as afraid today as they were the day they walked out all. You know why that is? They've heard about hell, but they haven't heard about the good news. The good news is they've been set free if they put their faith in Jesus. Third, the gospel is sufficient for redemption. You don't need a miracle. I've heard people say this to me, uh, well, pastor, if I could just see some miraculous work. I heard about some statue down in uh, South America that was bleeding, and maybe, maybe I need to go down there so that I can see. You won't believe when you go down there. You, you won't be any closer to believing because you're waiting for God to do some amazing miracle in front of your eyes so that you can put faith. That's not faith, friends. That's not faith at all. And by the way, Jesus has already done everything that needs to be done. God has done everything that needs to be done. Scripture speaks clearly the resurrection happened just as it was laid out in Scripture. A man who was dead three days came back to life. And as such... You put your faith in Him. The gospel is sufficient. Just as Abraham says to this rich man, they've got the prophets, they've got the law. I can say to you, you've got the Old Testament and the New Testament. You've got Jesus Christ, the perfect revelation of God, who walked upon this earth. You don't need anything else. All that is left is for you to turn, repent, put your faith in Jesus, walk with Him. Third, or fourth, I'm sorry. Belief in heaven and hell should lead us to evangelism. Isn't it interesting that the guy that Jesus describes in hell, that after his own comfort, the very next thought in his mind is somebody needs to go herald the word to my brothers to make sure they don't come here. Now to me, it's a, it's a terrible thing when the people who are in Hades right now are more concerned about evangelism than the ones 
who've heard the gospel, responded to it, and are still alive and have the opportunity to tell, tell someone about it. If you believe in heaven and you believe in hell, then shouldn't that cause us to bring Jesus up? You know, we can talk about golden streets and pearly gates, and we can talk about the flames of hell and, and the torment there, but if that doesn't lead us, to talk to the person in the cubicle next to us about the faith that we found in Jesus, if that doesn't lead us to say, I have found life, have you found it? If our knowledge about heaven and hell doesn't drive us to love our neighbor as ourselves, then, then we need to repent, folks. There's no other way to put this that it's not my responsibility alone, the clergy's responsibility alone, the deacon's responsibility alone to tell this community about Jesus. No, when you came to faith in Christ and you found mercy and grace in Him and you escaped this place, Jesus sent you out. He's sending you out to make sure that your friends and your family have the opportunity to escape this place we're talking about this morning. It's not enough to know about it. The reason we know about it is so we can make sure others know that the good news is available. Finally, wealth is not a ticket into heaven. You can have all the money, you can have all the power, you can have all the fame. And you may think that for somehow God's going to tip the scales in your favor just because of all that influence. The sad fact is, is it could be that you make it all the way to your deathbed and you begin to realize, maybe for the first time in your life, that you've not been reconciled to your Creator. And that is too late. Just as much as wealth doesn't guarantee you a ticket into heaven, poverty doesn't guarantee that somebody's going to this place. That, that the lack of goods, the lack of things, the what we often think of poverty, the lack of things. When we look at someone, we may think that, that they couldn't possibly be in a right relationship with God. Well, we're making the same mistake that the Pharisees made that prompted Jesus to teach this parable. The rich man was depending on his wealth and his heritage as a Jewish man, but he wasn't depending upon the good news. The reality is that there's only two possibilities upon death. Only two. And we've got enough of a contrast between what we talked about the last two weeks and today to see that one place is going to be a place of comfort. One place is going to be a place of torment. And in this short little lifespan that we've got, how we respond to the gospel determines where we open our eyes once our life is over. Are you certain? Are you certain where you stand with Christ? Not asking you if you're a Baptist. Not asking you if you're a member of this church. Not asking you if you're serving anywhere. I'm not asking you if you go to small group. I'm not asking if uh, you've been baptized by water. What I'm asking you is, it says the good news, the grace of Jesus Christ, moved you from death unto life. I believe you can know. I believe you can know. I believe you can know fully and completely. I've got that assurance this morning. You have that assurance. And Christian, let me ask you a question. They said, I get it. We get afraid to bring up Jesus. We get anxious about that. We, we're, 
We offer the excuse we don't know what to say, and let me say that is definitely an excuse. Can we just all agree that when we're out there and we have an opportunity, and, and even, even the Holy Spirit saying, bring it up, bring it up, the door's wide open. Talk about the life you found. You've been in those situations probably countless times where the door is wide open, the Holy Spirit's at work, and, and, and we give these, oh, I don't know what to say. No, you do know what to say. Trust me, you do. And not only that, the Bible promises that in that moment, if you get tripped up on your words, the Holy Spirit's going to give you what you need to say in that moment. So it's just an excuse. Let's just call it what it is. But if you believe in heaven and you believe in hell, why in the world is the church of Jesus Christ so quiet about the good news of the gospel? Father in heaven, there are two groups of people watching online and sitting in this building, only two. There is no in-between. There is no place where we're trying to figure it out. We're either in darkness or in light. We have have either been born again or we're spiritually dead. Father, we could go on and on about what your word says. The reality is there's only two groups of people. And Father, I believe, based on your word, that folks know where they are. I believe they know in relation to the cross, in relation to salvation, they know where they stand. There are some under the sound of my voice who have truly crossed death and the life. But Father, they don't have an assurance of that at all. It could be what they were taught. It could be what happened with that moment they put faith in you. It could be what's happened since then. But Father, they don't have any assurance. And every day they live with this big question mark over their head. Am I going to go to this place or am I not? Am I going to heaven? Is everything okay? Father, that is a tactic of Satan himself. And Father, I pray that during this time of response, whether online or here, that we would settle that once and for all. Father, there's another group of people. Those folks are spiritually dead. They they are not reconciled to you through Jesus Christ. And as such, with every minute that passes by, the more they reject, the closer they get to this place that we've described this morning. Father, the goal is not to scare them. The goal is to present to them the greatest news the world has ever heard. That by faith, believing, and repentance, turning, their life can be set free from this fear. And that their home in heaven can be assured. Father, I pray that whether online or in this place, they would realize there are people ready to pray with them, to walk with them, to get in God's Word, to get your Word together. Whatever's needed, the time is now. Father, I recognize that those who are lost are hearing this voice in their head that says, oh, you got plenty of time. Oh, not a problem. Next week will be fine. Father, they are toying around with their eternity. And Father, I pray that today they would hear no other voice but yours. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist.